This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Welcome to the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, co-founder and editorial director of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, Jamie Bogner. My guest on the podcast this episode 220 is the Guinness Book of World Records holder for most beer collaboration brews. He is the pastriest of the pastriers, the collabiest of the collaborators, and a brewer has, who has never found an adjunct that uh, he didn't like to add to beer. I, maybe that's wrong. Maybe we can correct that one. Kyle Harrop. Horace Aged Ales, welcome to the podcast, Kyle. Thank you, James. And and I shouldn't say that there is not a single adjunct that you have not liked. I am just absolutely amazed at your ability to find a sheer number of adjuncts, even when they are the same ingredient added in so many different ways into a beer. I'm excited to talk to you, uh, you know, about how you add ingredients into beers because you have um, applied yourself in your brewing to doing this in a very creative way. That's not just about, um, you know, creating an Instagram story, but also achieving flavor goals within beers. We're going to talk about that. Uh, and I should say Horace aged ales. You all are, you're based out of Oceanside, California there in Southern California. Yep. Yep. Interesting model for the brewery. Uh, and we can talk about that more as we get into it. Uh, you know, beers like Coconut Convergence have scored a whopping 96 with our blind panel. Some really cool, fun stuff to talk about there. We're going to dive into that deep world of pastry, dessert, and flavored beers. Before we do that, what if you could chill your beer with a more efficient chiller? Answer GD Chiller's new micro-channel condensers. GD's micro-channel condensers are highly efficient in hotter regions, use a fraction of the refrigerant over traditional chillers, which provides less opportunity for leaks along with lower global warming potential. GD Chiller's engineers are committed to green technology design developing a more energy-efficient chiller for the brewing industry. Contact G&D Chillers today at gdchillers.com. Also, this episode is brought to you by BSG Exclusive Distributors of RAR Malting Company. Since 1847, RAR Malt has been a benchmark of quality and consistency for brewers from the 19th century to today's craft beer pioneers. Whether you're creating classic lagers, resin-clouded hazies, or barrel-aged behemoths, where our North Star pills, malted oats, and more are here to make your brewing dreams a reality. Get in touch today at go.bsgcraft.com slash contact dash us. All right, Kyle, let's get into it. Let's talk about your brewing history first. Uh, you have a, an interesting one. Uh, you were an accountant who started a brewing business on the side to kind of flex that creativity as a side hustle. And you set about it by brewing a whole bunch of beers with a whole bunch of people in a very short amount of time. But uh, give me the nutshell history of your beer history and what got you to where you are today. Um, I started out as just a huge craft beer nerd. I was the, the weird guy at 21 drinking craft beer. Like all my friends were like, what are you doing? It's more expensive than this natural light we can buy from the store. Um, <laughs> so that transitioned into me homebrewing, um, got really heavy into it in grad school. So again, I was about 21 years old. I had just finished undergrad and started grad school. 
school two months later. Um, just really got after it pretty crazily. And by the time I finished grad school, I had about eight batches going at any given time. Um, and oddly, I did my master's thesis on a business plan for a craft brewery. Um, I did not pursue it at that time. I got an aerospace job in financial accounting uh, about two months after I graduated from grad school. That's interesting. And so much aerospace that. now on the uh, on the Southern California brewing scene. I know that was uh, Julian Schrago's thing too. Yeah, and I actually, um, not to get too, too sidetracked, but worked at the same company Rob Croxel did. Um, he's the owner of El Segundo Brewery Company in my hometown. Um, his dad coached me in baseball. My parents <laughs> uh, taught him swimming. Super small world. Yeah. So grad school, uh, got a job at Northrop Grumman. They're one of the major aerospace companies in my hometown. Um, worked there for nearly a decade and a half. At uh, 2015, kind of a perfect storm of things happened. Um, my wife had given me the Horace um, branding and everything as a gift for our wedding. And um, at the time, I was like, oh, cool, I can make homebrews and put this logo and stuff on them. But um, fast forward a few months later, I had a pretty crazy health scare and um, everything ended up being fine. But I kind of woke up one day and was like, things, uh, life can be pretty short and I want to try to do this. Um, I just had to find a way to make it work and still work my other aerospace jobs because I couldn't support a family by just starting out at brewery at the time. And, uh, so yeah, getting into the model of Horace, it was a model that I could do while I was working 50, 60 hour a week on a computer. And, uh, a lot of people don't know this, but I started out as primarily mixed culture barrel-aged beers, and I think that's actually one of the first beers you tried from me, Jamie. I remember texting with you about it yeah, several I think years you're right. ago. And, um, yeah, basically had an engagement party, um, pulled one of my stouts from a little bourbon barrel and let friends and family taste it and uh, they were all blown away by it. So kind of like, well, I uh, should probably make some stout, it sounds like, too. <laughs> so um, basically that kicked off a year. I did 55 collaborations in one year and um, learned how to brew professionally, basically. Um, went from five gallons, you know, up to... 210 barrels at one spot, um, learned everything from a one barrel system all the way up to that behemoth and, um, just really dove right in. And How do you just start? I, I mean, I'm really fascinated. This sounds like, you know, one of those scenarios where the guy starts with a paper clip and then ends up training it for, you know, a luxury yacht or something, you know, by doing, <laughs> you know, a thousand different trades. I mean, you know, it, you don't, I mean, for most people, you don't just start by doing collaboration brews. It's 
the relationships that you build into. How, how, how did that happen for you? So I, again, I was a huge beer nerd and with that came, you know, relationships with, um, pro brewers already. Um, Patrick Brew, I was at the brewery the day he opened. I knew him back in his home brewing days and I'm actually going to go brew with him tomorrow and, uh, make some wine as well. So nice. Um, I met Tommy Arthur, uh, John Van Roy, tons of people over the years. Um, was part of a lot of the major tastings and put on some tastings in San Diego, um, like Woodshop, if you're familiar with that or anyone out there. Mm-hmm. And uh, just built um, relationships over the years. You know, I knew Julian. Julian worked across the hallway from my dad at Raytheon. He was a cryogenics engineer. My dad's in fire. Um, so I knew him and Gabe and we used to frequent Seal Beach and it was just crazy. Once like I told people I was thinking about it, the consensus was go for it. And um, everyone was super friendly and just, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Very, it just offered all kinds of information and beyond helpful. And when it came time to learn and do stuff um, on a professional level, Everyone was just there with open arms, and uh, it, it's crazy. That's what I love about this industry. Um, you know, it's, people ask, oh, it's so competitive. Like where you are in San Diego, there's a hundred and something breweries. We all do different things and different sizes, and working together, I think, is my favorite part of the industry, hence the probably three, three, four hundred collabs I'm at at the moment. <laughs> So <laughs> that's, um, it's surely insane, but yeah, that, uh, you know, that speaks to that kind of interconnectedness and, um, you know, you're right, both the willingness to learn and to share, uh, you know, and that multi-directional kind of approach that, that we all take here. No, that, I mean, it's, that's, a, it's a super cool thing. Um, you know, so you start by making collab beers, but then you're also, you know, trying to you know, launch your own brand and release your own beer what was the the strategy around that so basically filled barrels before i started the collabs and um you know mixed culture beers i don't even taste them until the 12 month mark so i basically had a year um of patience and, and you're, um, brewing, you're not you don't have a brew house you're brewing wort at other spots bringing in and fermenting it then yourself exactly um i've, I've used the six to eight different breweries in San Diego County to date. I might start using another one or two, but um, yeah, that goes to the relationship thing as well. You know, it's a crazy investment for stainless and all that, especially when I, you know, work in a career on the side and won't ever be a full production model. So, and when you're making that style of beer that's got to sit there for a year plus, sometimes two or three before you sell it, um, really nice to not be paying off a, a brew house at that point. Exactly. And yeah, I mean, I just don't, I've, I've bunched numbers and even on a 10 or 15 barrel system with the amount of beer I could make, I basically would have time for, I it would never make sense with the current model so um yeah i i brewed 
with Wakefield and Great Notion and Peace Support and a bunch of powerhouse breweries that first year. So when it came time to brew the, the first stouts of my own, it was uh, there was a lot more comfort than there was <laughs> uh, the year prior, that's for sure. Sure, sure. Yeah, now at the same time, like everyone had been, you know, jumping into barrel aging and, uh, you know, especially in that 2015, 2016 realm, I mean, folks were getting incredibly good at it. Um, you know, trying to stand out in that market got, you know, became harder and harder and it's now harder than it's ever been even right now. Yeah. Um, you know, definitely want to talk about how you were able to kind of create a, an idea around Horace Beers and then, you know, kind of a, a through line, especially through those, you know, stouts and barrel aged clean beers. Before we do that, is your brewery struggling to source or afford berry ingredients? Historic heat waves devastated U.S. berry crops, causing supply to dwindle and prices to skyrocket. That's why brewers are switching over to Old Orchard's craft concentrate blends, which mimic straight concentrates but at a better price point and with more reliable supply. Is it any surprise that Old Orchard's best sellers are raspberry and blackberry flavors? Reclaim your margins and order your craft concentrates at oldorchard.com slash brewer. Also, Brew Monitor from Precision Fermentation is the first real-time comprehensive fermentation monitoring solution. It works with your existing fermentation tanks to track dissolved oxygen, pH, gravity, pressure, temperature, and conductivity in real time from any smartphone, tablet, or PC. Brew Monitor provides detailed insight into your fermentation that helps improve beer consistency, reduce tank time, and increase overall efficiency, saving your brewery time and money. Get started for 30 days risk-free. Visit precisionfermentation.com slash brewing. So Kyle, as you started brewing stouts, you know, you, um, I, you know, I love it that you are downplaying and, and getting into this humbly learning from other folks as you do it. But, uh, you know, from the, from the time you started releasing them, there was, uh, there was demand for them. People wanted them and, yeah. uh, and you definitely had a, a, a flavor forward approach to those. So talk to me about how, you know, how you set out to differentiate yourself in the market from, uh, from the outset. Well, I mean, it was a happy accident at the beginning in that um, I brewed the stout the way I like to at home. And that was, you know, very um, focused on my sweet tooth. <laughs> <laughs> uh, even, even the beers that I wasn't adjuncting at home, uh, they would finish a lot higher than, you know, uh, homebrew recipe or something you would find online. And the idea behind that was sitting in barrels, they're going to thin out, and uh, absorb some of that booze. So to keep them on the sweeter side, to, to keeping the gravity up. And um, I just went for it from the beginning um, on that front. And to answer your question, how I differentiated myself from the beginning it is, and, or it was and still is, just pushing boundaries, I think. Um, you mentioned it earlier with, using any and all kinds of adjuncts. Um, you know, I think as much has been done in craft craft beer and brewing, I there's still a lot of room for experimentation, and I think that's what keeps me excited about it and um, keeps me pushing. And uh, it really shapes 
how I approach brewing. So stout wise, basically can narrow it down to five different recipes. And um, let's say I'm going for a fresh stout that is not going to see barrels and it's going to have coffee in it. I will generally leave all roasted malt out of that beer and uh, let the coffee do the balancing. Okay. And if I'm, if I'm going for a overly, okay, so you mentioned coconut convergence earlier. Um, that beer, I would keep roasted barley and carafa too and malts like that in there because you're going to add so much sugar and sweetness from that adjunct that you don't want to overdo it. That beer that would have the coffee in it, if you added coconut to that, it would essentially taste like a snow cone or a cake. I mean, it's going to be over the top sweet and sugary. So um, I approach each stout as, is it going into a barrel or not? And then what adjunct is it getting, if any? And I tailor the malt bill towards that. That's interesting. Even even with the barrel-aged beers that are going to sit for a while, you still, as you brew them, you're, you're thinking down the road into, you know, what adjunct is probably going to go into that and uh, adjusting that. Or, or I guess you, I guess at this point you could even think about having drier, sweeter, roastier, more bitter, you know, stuff that can go into any school of adjunct. I mean, uh, you know, just to have a little bit more flexibility. How does that work for you? Yeah, so when I'm brewing a stout for barrels, I'll typically um, have it finish uh, significantly higher than a fresh stout. Um, so it'd be pretty grossly sweet if you were to just bottle it right. after it's five, six weeks in the tank. Um, but over time in the barrel, and it pulls in all the tannins and everything else, it, it keeps it from going too lean, too thin, too boozy. Um, and I don't really approach it the same way I did at the beginning. So now I have quite a barrel stock compared to what I did um, right. from the get-go. It's every, I go into everything as it being non-adjuncted at this point, especially working with William LaRue Weller, all the Pappies, Thomas Handy, Birthday Bourbon, like all these crazy barrels I've gotten in the past few years. I don't want to necessarily add anything to those because they're such crazy expressions of, you know, their original alcohol on their sure. own. Um, but, you know, some, some do jump out at me. If I taste something that I think is going to pair well with an adjunct, I'll do a bunch of bench tests. Um, I think the most recent one that was released so far was a good example of it was uh, a beer called Planifolia Per. And people thought I was nuts putting vanilla into a, a three-year-old happy, I think it was a 20-year uh, bourbon barrel-aged stout. But there was just something that was, speaking to me i had just gotten these congo vanilla beans and throughout the bench testing the beer tasted a lot better with vanilla than it did without it and that's ultimately how i make that decision now yeah i mean i imagine that uh just because the bourbon that comes out of that barrel is fantastic doesn't always mean that the barrel itself 
is going to be some magical thing for the beer that you put into it, especially a, a barrel that's a beer, especially a barrel that's that old, um, you know. And yeah. there, and of course, I think you know, as everybody knows, that makes these things. A lot of times, the condition that the barrel arrives to you in matters even more than what spirit was in it, um, you know. But uh, but at the same time, sounds really 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 cool to have a beer aged in twenty year old Pappy Van Winkle barrels. Yeah, it's, it's awesome. Um, with that said, I think if I had a choice of any barrel to use, I think um, this seven or eight year Weller or Blanton's barrels, yeah. or even Hill in that same age statement, is kind of uh, the cream of the crop from my experience. Um, it's crazy that. So I, I started this series this past year um, called the Cloudbreaker series, and I'm bottling the third and fourth one here shortly. But it's basically an expression um, from a VTAC barrel or um, a Pappy barrel. And the first four have been one non-adjunct and one vanilla version from those same barrels. So the first one was George T. Stagg. And out of any barrel I've ever used, um, that was the craziest roller coaster of flavor changes. Um, that the whiskey in that oak was so intensely hot. Um, yeah. you know, I think that batch I got was 142 proof or Ooh. somewhere in the 140. So you're S- dealing serious with serious hazmat uh, right there. Yeah. With rocket fuel. So, um, it was scary how much character how much bourbon character it took on in the first time I had tasted it. And then it was a slow progression of mellowing out and it just ended up being like the fudgiest, most chocolate forward, not adjunct beer I've ever done. And, you know, I I don't know if I'll get a chance to use stag barrels again, but that's just another like super fun experiment that I was fortunate enough to get to do. So interesting. Yeah. I guess, you won't have any 2021 stag, uh, George T. Stag barrels. So, hey, there you go. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, I, I want to step back a second and, and, you know, talk about this because I think it's really interesting as you're formulating these, you know, the, uh, these ideas in your head, you know, making these kinds of adjustments. You know, initially now you've settled into that. You know, what, what do those kind of five core recipes generally look like for you now? You talking like grain bills? Yeah. Yeah, so the sweeter one that I would add coffee to, that first example, would be a lot of crystal malt. Um, It's essentially a dark English barley wine with some pale chocolate and um, midnight wheat for color. Hmm. So oddly enough, (laughs) I'm about to release, um, I guess you can say I've, I'm going to create a new beer style. I don't know if it'll catch on or anything, but um, I'm going to call it Chris Dale, and it's it's a hundred percent crystal malt beer, um, <laughs> which was just awful fresh, like yeah. the sweetest, astringent, just weird thing out of the tank. But I knew going into it, I was putting that thing in the barrels for a minimum of eighteen months for all those flavors to to do their thing and um you know i was apprehensive about it and then earlier this year i i visited brad at private press for the first time and tasted his munich wine that like made me 
confident and not scared to release, you know, a completely new beer style. And you say a hundred percent crystal malt to a lot of brewers are going to look at you like you're nuts, but, um, you know, a lot of rice holes later and a lot of time <laughs> in Oak and <laughs> I'm fascinated with, uh, the outcome of that one. It is somewhere in between an English barley wine and a, I would say a really chocolate forward stout, um, with some dark fruit notes. It's pretty cool. So when you say all crystal malt, how do you, uh, you know, in general kind of spread that out through that crystal spectrum then? So, uh, the majority was like crystal 15 L, um, the lightest they make. Um, my favorite malt in the world is DRC double roasted crystal from Simpsons. There's a good amount of that in there. Um, a tiny bit of extra dark and then just sprinklings of the lighter ones. Um, and high, highest original gravity I could get in it finished. Um, I think it's 14 Plato. So it's thinner than a lot yeah, of, right. Um, so not as sweet as you typically might go into a barrel then. Yeah, not, not, not as sweet and not as thick as a lot of my stouts um, coming out of the barrel, but not really its intention. Um, I can tweak things as time goes on. We'll see how it's received amongst consumers, but I'm, I'm very excited about it. Yeah. From a sensory perspective, you know, as you tasted it going in, what did it taste like? And now that you, now that you taste it, how would you describe how the barrel changed that experience over time? Yeah. At first it was somewhere in between like, um, melted down Werther's originals and this very weird, like minerality I couldn't put my hand on. Hmm. And now it's, transitioned into very like toffee and caramel forward um with like milk chocolate notes it's i don't get a lot of vanilla and oak like i typically do from a barley wine like an english barley wine or a lot of my stouts even the wood almost um just pronounced what you're trying to do with the crystal malt it, it's like a, just a gigantic caramel bomb Interesting, interesting. Talk to me a little bit about uh, you know, hops and then, of course, yeast and that. Do you use, I mean, I, you're in San Diego, so uh, I assume you're using a, a relatively you know dry workhouse, workhorse West Coast yeast. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. And then how do you, you know, what do you, what do you, uh, you know, what's your approach to hops look like and something like that? Yeah, hops, um, I'm typically in the 30 to 40 IBU range on the South and Barley wine. Um I tend to gravitate towards Columbus and Warrior. Um, I, I couldn't tell you why. That's what I did. Homebrewing, I've just stuck with it. I, I've always liked that flavor profile that mm-hmm. goes along with it. With, you know, the, the yeast, it's going to depend on what I want that final beer to be. If I want to make, you know, a 40 Play-Doh original gravity stout and get it down in the low teens, then I'm going to have to use San Diego Super Yeast, which I had used for many, many years. It's a White Lab strain. I think it was like 99 or somewhat one of the 90 strains. Um, I've tried combinations of uh, US05 and Champagne yeast on those bigger beers, but Hmm. I like San Diego Super more. Yeah. And... I typically use Chico or American Ale 
that we're not going for some massive ABV right off the bat. Um, and I think my sweet spot is, you know, finishing in the 10 to 12% ABV range before barrels and having it take on a, you know, a percentage point or even three or four like that stag one did. Um, I think that's where I've kind of decided where I want to be. It took me about five years to get to there, but, um, that's where I'm happy right now. When you say it took you five years to get to there, what do you mean? You were trying higher, you were trying lower, and there's just something about the way that those varying flavors, sweetness, roast, coffee, ingredients, extraction, everything else works right at that kind of ABV range that fits what you're trying to do? Yeah, I think a lot of like my earlier barrel-aged stouts were 16 17%. And um, at that point, you're, you have to use so much adjunct to <laughs> kind of get past the booze of right. the barrel character that it's not doing either side justice. Um, and I think finding that, that sweetness, that hint of sweetness still is at least like what my club members and people that enjoy my beers are expecting and looking for. So, um, you know, I dialed back the ABV for those reasons. Um, that's not to say I don't have some really strong stuff in barrels still, and I will release those in the future, but, um, I am, I got to the point with, um, I think coconut convergence was one of them where it was like, 16% and you're just adding coconut and adding coconut and more coconut and more coconut and <laughs> right. more coconut to get that like pastry profile that I know people are going to be wanting. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's the intensity is great, but you can achieve that intensity at the lower ABV using a more reasonable amount of those things that is just friendlier to everybody. And also, you know, what makes a more drinkable beer. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about the, you know, how you select and add some of these adjunct ingredients and also talk about how, you, you know, I'm really interested in this because, again, you really play the spectrum of different ways to add these ingredients. And before we do that, from the rotatable pickup tube on Rogue Brewing's Pilot Brewhouse to the integrated hotbacks on Sierra Nevada's twin prototyping brewhouses, SS Brewtech has taken technology they invented working with world-renowned industry veterans and made them available to every craft brewer. To learn more about SS Brewtech's innovation list, head over to ssbrewtech.com. Also, have you heard of PBW tablets? Yeah, that's right. The PBW powder you've known and trusted is now in tablet form from Five Star Chemicals. Available in two sizes, so you can use just one tablet in either 32 ounces or one gallon of water to optimize your cleaning. Forget measuring. Just add a tablet to water and quickly clean all stainless equipment, growlers, kettles, or carboys. Purchase on their website or at your favorite homebrew supplier. So, Kyle... You definitely have a reputation for, uh, I'm not going to call it overkill, because as I've tasted your beers, I think that even though they're sweet, even though you use a lot of different ingredients in them, there is, there's a point to it. 
and mm-hmm. and there's a balance to it. You know, I, we talk about sweetness, especially in, this, in the case of Stouts, and there's a certain kind of brewer that loves to complain about how beers are sweet and this is how beer should be and blah, 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 blah. And I, I understand. I get that point of view. I, I, I can appreciate that. But uh, also, as I taste well-made beers in this kind of dessert and pastry realm, the thing that separates well-made ones from simply cloying over the top, um, you know, a fan service is that kind of balance. A beer can be that sweet. It can be that intensely sweet if it's well balanced in that kind of sweetness. And so, uh, you know, I think that, you know, as I, as I taste your beers, they don't feel unbalanced in that kind of absurd sweetness. There is, you know, you are certainly considering, all of these pieces as they go into it in order to create a rounded whole, um, you know, that, that works. Um, having said that you, you go at it pretty hard. Let's talk about some of the, the more interesting ingredients from your perspective that you've tapped into yeah. and what you've found in exploring some of these different ways to use these different forms, varieties, origins, and whatnot of ingredients. Kick, yeah, kick, kick me I off think, with one in particular that uh, that you think is, is interesting and um, leave some space to, to talk about. Yeah, I think um, for what I'm known for is probably coffee the most. And ironically, I don't drink coffee. Um, <laughs> I've always found it to be the best in keeping things in balance in darker beers. And um, I got really intrigued when a buddy of mine started a, a roasting company he has a subscription service and uh, smelling and tasting Jamaica Blue Mountain and Geisha and all these things for the first time. And it just opened my mind to what that could transform a stout into. So, um, you know, at home I tried every method possible. Yeah, there might be one I haven't tried, but I haven't thought of it yet. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we're talking cold brew, um, fine ground, dusting it into sand, um, you know, all across the board. And what I've come to um, think works best for me is 24 hours whole beans, uh, steep it in a tank like a, uh, you know, it's funny when people ask me about my adjuncting, I I describe it as a tea bag a lot of the time because basically putting the flavor deep in the beer. Um, you know, I do recirculate and do those things too, but coffee, especially, I think the gentle, um, extraction you get from a whole bean that's not overly roasted and not under roasted, um, just adds a crazy expression to your beer. And, uh, you know, I've, I've met a lot of people over the years that do things completely different on the coffee spectrum. I'm, uh, typically about a pound per barrel. I talked to Corey King and Phil, uh, so Corey at Side Project and Phil at Perennial, and I think one of them does seven pounds per barrel and the other <laughs> does 10 on theirs, and I'm just like, wow, that's so much. But, um, you know, their beers are great, and I, you know, stump and coffee shop vibes right off the bat come to mind as some of my favorite coffee beers. And sure. They're their method completely different than mine, but um, it works too. So 
I don't think there's, you know, perfect way of doing things, but my, my way has been uh, pretty much just one day in, in the bright tank before packaging. One day, whole bean in the bright tank. Uh, what what kind of temperature? Um, in the high thirties, typically. Yeah. Um, a lot of people, you know, that goes back to the other methods. I know some people that wear by doing it early on in the sixties. And when I've tried that in the past, I get like peppery. I call it nacho kind of um, bite that I, I can't handle. I can't. Once I smell that, I can't even drink it. So. Um, I try to stay away from that and then, you know, not pulling out too much acidity. Coffee can get crazy tart um, if you're not careful. And I found that with doing like cold brew extraction at home a lot of the time. So I think my paranoia kind of shapes how I do it now. And there, you know, there's other brewers that do things a lot different that have great success. But that's been, uh, been what works for me. When it comes to selecting and roasting coffee, um, what does that look like for you? I mean, how do you, you mentioned Jamaica Blue Coffee, Jamaican uh, Blue Mountain Coffee and Gesha Coffee, but, uh, you know, is there some method to what you're looking for in those flavors as you select that? And then, again, how it's roasted in order to kind of bring the flavor out? Yeah, I mean, pretty much every year I'd buy um, an auction lot of Gesha and that can vary from a couple hundred dollars, you know, to over a thousand dollars a pound. So what I'm looking for in that coffee, it's so delicate. And, um, you know, if you, again, don't roast it enough, it can get quite acidic. Um, if you over roast it, it kind of ruins all of its characteristics. So finding one that's chocolate and vanilla forward. Um, Geisha's got this like jasmine floral thing going on that I really like in stout, um, especially pairing that with vanilla or nuts. And uh, I look for for those bold flavors. I, I try to shy away from, you know, like the citrusy ones or uh, the lighter berry notes. Coffee's crazy. I mean, you, you can sit down and cup 10 different coffees from the same region and they're entirely different I, I don't know if it's my palate or not but I can't find anything else where that's the case like if someone put 10 of the same wines in front of me or same varieties of wine from the same region they would probably all taste the same but you know the coffees are all across the board for me hmm. so roasting um, typically medium fortunate to have one of my best friends do the roasting and uh he also does the graphic design on my label so, <laughs> um it's pretty awesome multi-talented and, uh, yeah very talented guy and um yeah i don't i don't try to overthink it i don't say i'm only buying from this farm or this roaster this i i keep an open mind and it changes annually i mean the flavor differences are pretty crazy um thinking back to a beer i did called proper dose like the geisha and that to the geisha i just used in a beer that's coming out in a few weeks here they could not be more different um so the proper dose one already had like this nuttiness and uh chocolate to it and this new batch is I've had multiple people try it and they're like, 
how much vanilla did you put in this? And I'm like, the only adjunct is coffee. And it's pretty <laughs> cool. So huh. you get that expression. It has to be an expensive thing to use that kind that coffee that's that expensive as a whole bean with that kind of limited extraction. But I can see why if you can get the kind of flavor out of it that you want at one pound per barrel, that is, uh, it's much more reasonable than the way that, that some folks are using it. Um, I'm Absolutely. just, I'm, I'm just so fascinated that you can, you can get that level of extraction with that kind of limited time. Yeah. And that's, you know, it goes back to the, the stout grain bill. You kind of keep that as a sweet canvas and let the coffee do its thing. Um, you don't have those roasted malts that, counter with it and that's how i approached out they're basically if i'm going to adjunct this out what is going to be the best canvas for the adjunct that i'm adding to it and uh i always joke with people i collaborate with uh especially when we're using new adjuncts and i, I say okay you guys can be the guinea pigs and uh, we'll see if this works before i do one on my own warning to future collaborators <laughs> <laughs> all fun aside um you know, I think collabs in that first year were were learning um, first and foremost. And now it's cool to be in a position, you know, six, seven years later, where I think my main focus is giving back and teaching other brewers um, things that have worked for me because I had so many people do that uh, for me when I was starting out. And I think that's super cool and um, just sharing what works and what doesn't. And I think that's the most important thing for any new brewer, especially. Well, I'm glad that's your point of view because that's what we're doing right here on this very podcast. <laughs> but I like yeah. the, I like this idea that as you pull bitterness out of uh, and roastiness out of the malt bill, then it, you can add it back in with that coffee where the flavor and the roastiness are coming back in equal measures so that you don't also have that kind of overpowering roast existing already in there in the malt bill that you need to then overcome, you know, with, with the coffee in some way or yeah. another. So, I, I mean, I conceptually, I think it, it follows and, and makes some sense there. Um, you know, moving out from coffee, let's talk about a, another, uh, you know, interesting adjunct uh, kind of ingredient or ingredient family. Let's talk about vanilla for example, something that a lot of brewers yeah. are, are finding lots of places, you know, f for in their varying beers, everything from highlighting fruit flavors in wild and sour beers or even kettle sours into, you know, of course, adding that kind of warmth, sweetness and earthiness into, into barrel aged stouts and whatnot, you know, um, over the last couple of years in particular, especially after the, you know, the kind of you know, vanilla crunch that we experienced, we are now seeing more origins of vanilla. We're seeing, uh, you know, maybe a bit of a more broad approach to vanilla flavor and more options out there, more in the palette to work with. Talk to me about, uh, you know, how, again, you work through some of these varying origin vanillas and think about the varying flavors that they can add into your beer and then how you go about getting those into the beer. Yeah, there's, uh, I would say in the past year, probably you know double the spectrum of what there is to choose from right and uh i think vanilla for me what i like it to do in my stouts is i think the perfumey fragrant notes is most important for me 
there's a certain kind of sweetness that you get from vanilla, and I think that could add a whole new texture to the beer on that on that finish. Um, so I think those things are most important. Um, with that being said, use some vanilla lately that you know probably most similar to like tobacco and leather, where like bourbon Madagascar, for example, that's going to be the sweeter, almost. Um, what you would expect from a bakery kind of vanilla. Right. And I think that goes great in pastry stout. Um, I've had a lot of luck with Congo lately. They're just very like rich berry, dark fruit forward. Not as fragrant, but they come through a lot more in the flavor from what I've noticed. Yeah. Um, I think Campano is how you say them, but there's, uh, there's these new beans. I saw one, and I'm not kidding, it was bigger than the banana my son was eating. Um, <laughs> one from bean. It was, it had to be close to a quarter pound. There was only five beans in this one pound bag. Um, might have even been bigger. But those, if you cut them open, it just oozes like this crazy molassesy. I don't know how to describe it. There's almost like a caramel, chocolatey character to them. Um, never never seen anything or smelt or taste anything like those. So I'm really excited to use those. You know, like at the beginning, I kind of narrowed it down to three I typically use, and that was Bourbon Madagascar, Tahitian, and Ugandan. And a lot of that is because that's what was available. Sure. Um, You know, I already touched on the Bourbon Madagascar. I think that Tahitian is just very fruity compared to the other two varieties and um, the Ugandan you get that like really intense fragrant almost dry vanilla Hmm. and uh, I would I would like using that in like a very sweet stout I think it added a really cool layer to that I had had a few beers I believe from eight state down in South Carolina that really opened my eyes to those beans years ago. Um, but like right now, if, if I had the option, I would probably put Congo in, in all my stouts. I think it's really complementing them well. It pulls in this like marshmallowy, um, dark fruit character that I've never gotten before from any vanilla. So. Huh. And your stouts are already, already sweet enough that they don't need the... You know that that vanilla to highlight that piece of it even more, but adding that extra yeah. earthy, you know, berry element is is the uh, the piece that makes it. Yeah, I think that's like the probably the perception of vanilla that frustrates me most is people think um, you know sweetness should come from that, but that's a very expensive way to add sweetness. Um, you can add sweetness through grain and boil times and various other ways um vanilla is not that sweet of a adjunct when you really think of it um it can be and some of those gross extracts they make and those things are but um i think no i think yeah i think it's the psychological thing with vanilla you know it's not that it itself is sweet it's that we just mentally associate it with sweet because yep. every context that we taste it in, whether it's 
a latte or whether it's a baked good or, or whatnot, every context that we have it in is, is sweet. So, uh, you know, I think we mental, yeah. we mentally fill in the space and just associate it with that. So even if it's not, it's sweet itself, it reminds us like, you know, it pulls that idea of sweetness with it. For sure. And I think like hearing, you know, consumers and friends of mine that aren't that into beer, and hearing like comparisons between lactose and vanilla where one ingredient is very inexpensive and the other is quite expensive. Um, that's pretty frustrating because, um, I don't know if it's an education thing or what, but I personally haven't used lactose in many beers. I think two beers in the last six years. And I think vanilla, when you use the real stuff, you know, go about it methodically, you can really make a beer have crazy dimension to it where the other is just like this perceived sweetness, you know, right off the bat. And right. I can go on and on about kettle sours or barely sours and all that. I, I just think that's the way that younger consumer base was viewing some of these things. And, um, one of the most misunderstood adjuncts has that. For sure. For sure. Let's talk about coconut for a little while because, uh, you know, again, I mentioned coconut convergence at the top and we've talked about it a little bit here. Um, that was a, a crazy wild ride all across all sorts of different ways from coconut candy and desiccated coconut to, uh, you know, more traditional methods of adding coconut. Uh, you know, part of me thinks that you listed all of those things just to tell a good story. But I'm curious from your perspective, uh, you know, I mean, obviously the beer was fantastic. Um, talk, talk to me about the, you know, the kind of elements that some of these different means of coconut preparation can add to a beer. Yeah. So like toasted coconut, first and foremost, is my favorite to use. Um, I buy it on nuts.com. I've tried various other suppliers, but I really like that one. Um, yeah. That gives this like, savory on an island eating um like a delicious pastry quality to to stout um i love using that i i steep that or i'll throw it in a blending tank for upwards of a week you know i start tasting it like the four day mark and kind of go from there desiccated coconut which is also in convergence is basically just dusted it's very fine it's uh you know it's almost granulated it's yeah you're it's that's an easy one to use how is that it just works in almost like a like a powder that you you know drop into the liquid and mix in exactly so coconut water was the one that threw me for a loop i had tried a bourbon county stout with it um two years back and I just tried so many things at home and the flavor was either not non-existent or just over the top, like not, not pleasant. And what I ultimately ended up doing was putting a whole lot of it, um, into the whirlpool. And, uh, I had success huh. doing that. What said, that was the one and only time I've used it and done it. So <laughs> who knows? <laughs> right, right. Hard, uh, hard to pick that piece of coconut out of the out of the hole. Yeah, and you know, I think it did add a cool kind of savory um, note to that beer, which was needed because coconut beers. My problem with them is they can get just flat out pulling. 
Yeah. And with that beer, I think my main goal is always balance. And that beer was very difficult to get what I was looking for. Um, but in the end, I, I was quite happy. I think the fresh version of that beer, Coconut Crown, was one of people's favorites for me. And um, I think it's pretty difficult to make a fresh stout taste good with adjuncts. Um, I think barrels are adjuncts in themselves, and they add the most flavor, or essentially the easiest and cheapest adjuncts in the end. Um, huh. And I, you know, I find that fascinating when a consumer will say, oh, it's not barrel aged. Why is it this much? Because I put an actual ton of coconut or, you know, a thousand pound um, coffee in there or a thousand dollars per pound coffee. And <laughs> right. like getting a fresh, high alcohol beer to taste it with adjuncts, that would have been the, the biggest challenge for me. And that, I don't taste many you know, good ones out there. I think what you were saying earlier, like the pulling and the um, just overly sweet kind of approach, um, that's what I try to stay away from. And, uh, you know, not to toot my own horn, but I, I do think that those beers are, are quite hard to make and they're obviously very expensive um, to make. Sure. So, so you might as well put them into barrels where nobody's going to uh, get mad at you about that or about the price. And uh, <laughs> it doesn't add that much more to the overall cost of production. But hey, you know, you, know, you can happily charge uh, 25% more. Now, you know, commercial concerns aside, there is something that, that is nice about the way that flavors can come together over time and that, and that uh, you're right at, you know, from the alcohol and the kind of tannic and oak and you know, vanilla and coconut character the barrels can provide, you know, they just helps bring everything together, helps helps pull it all in. Which is, Definitely. You know. And I think, you know, some beers, proper dose, for example, of mine, I, I don't think the barrel makes those adjuncted versions any better. I think, you know, the base beer in the barrel was probably great, but, you know, you make a beer and people want a barrel-aid version of it just because it's sat in the barrel is not going to make it better. Um, necessarily, you know, when you're adding four different adjuncts to it, it might, you know, play off the weird boozy character, um, or, you know, it kind of clashes even at times. So I think vanilla and coconut and coffee, um, really do shine with barrels. I think some of these other adjuncts, you know, it, it might be detrimental to the beer in the end. Sure. So when you make a clean version of, say, you know, your coconut beer versus the barrel-aged version, um, you know, I imagine you're having to stage your additions and timing in different kinds of ways given those, you know, two flows. Obviously, if you're going to throw some coconut water in the whirlpool, that's going to happen the same time for both of those beers. But, yeah. uh, you know, I imagine you're not conditioning on coconut before it goes into a barrel. Instead, you're doing it the other way around where it then goes through the barrel and then goes through that process. You know, how do you, you make some of those decisions about when to, to hit each of these, even if they are similarly, you know, conceived beers, both on the non-barrel-aged and barrel-aged side? Yeah, so um, if I know I want to do a barrel-aged version of an adjunct beer, I will brew basically two different batches and the one going into barrels will be higher gravity. Yep. Um, uh, 
with that said, the the approach is basically taking taking that stout um, from the barrel, putting it into a blending tank or a bright tank, and then treating it with adjuncts after the barrel. Right. The only adjunct I would put in a barrel is vanilla. Um, I'd probably do that about a quarter of the time. Um, I tried coffee once at home. It was terrible. Um, <laughs> not super oxidized and just awful. Yeah. Um, coconut. I would not want coconut or any, you know, let's call it a food product in quote, sitting on beer for over probably seven to 10 days. So that doesn't make sense. A lot of the nut beers, you know, there'll be nuts in the mash. So that's already got some nut character going into the, the barrel, but I definitely add them on the back end once the beer is out of the oak. Sure. Sure. Nuts, nuts are a tough ingredient given the the fat content and and of you know of course, and also some of the difficulty in getting enough flavor to really sell the idea of that nut. Um, are there some some that you like more than others, and in ways that you like to add those in to again not you know kill your head retention and you know destroy the kind of structural integrity of the beer, but. Uh, but also kind of capture some of that uh, nut goodness. Yeah, I love hazelnuts. Um, I think they impart the most flavor Yeah, out of all the I, I would say almonds are probably second. Um, I just used cashews for the first time, and that was very difficult. Hmm. And it, it requires... Just because they're so oily? Um, I would say more so because the flavor is so white. And creating, I'm all about like texture in those nutty beers, and it was just missing um, that savoriness. So I ended up adding uh, 10% salted cashews, which Mm. I've only done that with pecans in the past. Um, And it added just that much more nuttiness that finally was, you know, content um, with pulling that beer out of the tank. But I did that, and then I did a version with blueberries as well, um, cashew and blueberries. And I feel like the blueberries actually brought the nuttiness out in a way. So if I were to make a beer with cashews again, I'd probably make a very sweet base beer, uh, even sweeter than I did, um, because I had to use so many Mm. to get that flavor. It it added quite a bit of... uh, of savoriness in the end with the salt. <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure. Uh, no, you know, right, nuts, you know, it's, uh, we don't, you know, especially when you start adding sweetness into that equation there, it can be hard to find that right kind of balance and make them, make the beer really you know capture that you know a, a lot of times nuts get lost in that is there a, an amount that you tend to to find works or is there uh you know are there any tricks to as you add them in how you add them and uh improve the the extraction as they go it definitely depends on what kind of nut um hazelnuts i'm typically at about a pound per gallon which is a lot yeah um, but again I make a very small amount of beer. Um, 
very small batches. So it's a lot easier for me to do things like that. You know, I, I laugh when thinking about doing that on a scale with like pizza port on the collab or something, what that would even look like, um, from a sheer volume <laughs> standpoint. But, um, right. As far as extraction, I, I treat nuts the same way as coconut. So, um, leave them on there for to start tasting it in about four days um, and kind of go from there. I've never left them on any longer than nine days. Um, but I like to roast them. I like to chop them, get them pretty fine so yeah. there's more surface area. Um, I think your extraction is a lot better that way. Um, you're not going to get much out of a raw hazelnut or a raw almond. You're, uh, you want to bring that flavor out with, with the heat um, before adding them to your, your cold beer. I, right. I put them in uh, pretty cold, typically in the uh, mid-40s huh. um, or in high 30s, um, almost right tank temperature. I've found myself pushing um, more on the quantity and time since I got a pasteurizer because I'm not as worried about uh, infected bottles as much. Right. Um, with that. So, you know, like putting honey or maple syrup and that kind of stuff with a pasteurizer just uh, gives you much more peace of mind in the end. So, what, think, what, uh, yeah, what kind of pasteurizer are you using for these? So I got a batch pasteurizer. Um, I got in touch with Brad Clark at Private Press. When I'm going to see him in a couple of days, too, actually. But, yep. Um, he, he ordered this one actually near my in-laws in Wisconsin, and you can fit about 60 bottles on a tray and uh, about 10 to 15 minutes. So I do... He does the same, but uh, finished bottles, um, caps okay. and everything. Uh, basically, get hit with steamy hot water, and yeah. uh, once they hit a certain PU, that's what kills things off for um, you know a specific period of time. And uh, you pull them out and let them cool. Um, it's been interesting to see like the initial flavor changes in like the first few days, but after that. Um, it's the beer that really doesn't taste any different, sometimes even better in my opinion. Yeah. So had I been a larger brewer and been doing more volume than a couple hundred bottles at a time, I probably would have invested in a tunnel pasteurizer, right. which I saw like Cycle has. Um, yeah. You can I've, just do so much more and so much faster. Yeah, we Doug and I talked about that quite a bit on when I talked to him for an episode of the podcast, Doug from Cycle Brewing. Um you know, the good nature pasteurizers have been gaining a foothold in this kind of, you know, uh, you know pre-bottling or pre-packaging you know packaging pasteurization also. Yeah. Um, I know that Brett from Urban Artifact was talking about, you know, pasteurizing their own fruit, that that you know, cooking element, like you say, can actually sometimes really improve the flavors of these things. Yeah. You know, it's not, not necessarily a detriment. Um, it's interesting. Yeah, I was uh, I was skeptical at first, especially with things like coffee. But um, 
yeah, I'm, I'm very happy. And, uh, you know, I had everything tested at White Labs before and I still do it now. So it's just an extra um, layer of having that peace of mind before you release it. And I think, you know, going back to like the honey and that kind of stuff, you can't really add that into um, beers or you even said fruit. So you can't typically add that kind of stuff without having it in the back of your mind. Like, am I creating a, a grenade here? Um, sure. Is there going to be, you know, fermentation well, in the box or yeah. fermentation? And the flip side is for you, even that, yes, you brew a small amount of beer, but a recall or having to take bottles back or credit people or have something that doesn't work out like that where, I mean, that's hugely impactful because you brew a small amount of beer. And so it's much much better to not make that mistake from the outset than have to make good on a mistake like that. Absolutely. I had a, you know, I had one mistake over two different beers and I instantly bought that pasteurizer because another one would have put me under. I mean, yeah. it's, uh, when you're a small brewer, you're a small brewer and cost that up quick. So sure. Sure. By the time you, you talk grain, glass labels and all that, I was like, Oh boy, this can never happen again. So, um, <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> it's an added, uh, piece of labor and um you know not the most fun process but it's been a successful one so far let's talk about uh the craziest adjunct ingredient you know as you go back into your library of beers and uh, ingredients what was the weirdest or most difficult uh or you know challenging ingredient that you you know decided to add to a beer uh, are you talking a collab or something of my own? You tell me. I, I'm just I'm curious <laughs> about a story that we can all learn from or or avoid if we need to. I would say on a collab um, with the brewery in Placentia, we used um, Dulce de Leche, and it took months to find one without preservatives. It was basically the only natural one we could find, and. Um, it was a nightmare, you know, across the board. These little jars came. It was, I think, eight ounces apiece. And me and Andrew at the time, he's uh, one of the owners and brewers at Radiant now. Yep. But he and I went to a restaurant supply store and bought spatulas and were, you know, individually pulling the stuff out into the um, bubbling boil on their pilot system. <laughs> and, uh, just watching it like crystallize instantly almost. And, uh, that beer was quite successful. Um, and then they decided to do a full blown batch and, um, yeah, to make a long story short, I think everyone that worked on the brewing side at the brewery probably hates me. Um, (laughs) for, (laughs) for that reason alone, that, that stuff was crazy. Um, I had no idea what impact it would have um, when put in the boil, but we didn't want to put it on the back end because it's just so much sugar right. that, you know, it. who knows what could happen. Um, so we 
we chose to do it all in the boil and it um, gave off this like milky kind of Rolo um, character to the beer. It's not over the top, but you can definitely tell it's there and uh, definitely not cheap to get authentic Argentinian, um, no preservative, Dulce de Leche. So, <laughs> Uh, yeah. Thanks to Patrick who was there at the time and gave that green light. I'll make sure to bring that up when I see him tomorrow. I'm sure he's still <laughs> right. thrilled about that. <laughs> for sure. For sure. Well, let's zoom out here a little bit, uh, you know, as we wrap up. Let's, you know, f- for the long history of Horace, it's been this side project that you've run as a business, you know, slash labor of love while maintaining your, your primary employment as an accountant. Um, you know, what is this, what's the long-term picture for Horace? What is your goal with this? And, uh, you know, what, what is the, uh, what, you know, what do you hope to achieve with it? Yeah. Um, I would love to turn the glorified hobby into my, um, full-time professional, uh, gig, you know, all, all up. Um, I'll be honest with you. I've, I've achieved a lot of things already that I had only really dreamed about. Um, having my beer in Disneyland and working with like Run the Jewels and some of my favorite musicians and doing all this crazy stuff, winning um, medals and all that. It's just been like a bonus. So I think being able to make a living and um, do what I love full time would would be the end goal my daughter's five and a half years old now my son's one and a half so i'm probably a year and a half away from being able to see what that really looks like ultimately yeah um the little side brand ferris falcon um brewing the ipas and possibly opening up the tasting room with that i think will be a big part as well as i started making mead professionally about six months ago I'm very excited about and I think that can grow quite a bit too um, the first meet I submitted to Major Cup actually won gold so nice. next year yeah next year you know submitting 10 meads and seeing how things take off on those two um, like I said earlier I made more mead than beer at home I'm really excited about that next chapter too so just continuing doing what I'm doing but make it, uh, you know, slightly bigger, not much bigger. I don't think I can handle much more. Um, but being able, I think a huge thing for me would be a tasting room. That's where, you know, you can make pretty good money on lager and IPA in pints, you know, over your counter. I've been told that from a brewer I've ever met and it just blows their mind that I sell 99% of my beer, you know, packaged in bottles. Um, they think I'm crazy, but, um, that's how I had to do it from the beginning. And that's what I'm comfortable with right now. So, um, to answer your question, probably a little bit of the same for these next few years and then kind of look at things and see how I can make this my, my career from here on out only. Well, you are a little bit crazy, but, uh, I think (laughs) that's what, uh, that's what keeps it interesting and, and makes the beer good. G&D's micro-channel condensers use a fraction of the refrigerant over traditional chillers. Raw malt has been a benchmark of quality and consistency 
since 1847. Reclaim your margins with quality craft concentrates from Old Orchard. Get detailed insight into your fermentations with BrewMonitor risk-free. Put SS Brewtech's tech advances to work in your brew house and PBW tablets from Five Star Chemicals are a quick way to optimize your cleaning. Of course, if you enjoy this podcast every week, we would love your support. Just go to beerandbrewing.com, click on that subscribe button. Many of the guests we talk to here share additional insights, recipes, and more in the pages of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine and our pro-focused Brewing Industry Guide magazine. Our all-access subscriptions give you access to that along with video classes from some of the best in the biz. Kyle, I, uh, thanks for talking to me about how you brew these crazy, interesting, adjunct-forward, barrel-aged, uh, you know, beers. I, you're making some some beautiful beers in the process, and uh, it's amazing to me that you're all still doing this, not as a full-time job, and still holding down a family and a separate full-time job on top of it. That's insane. That's patently insane. Um, I don't know when you sleep. <laughs> I get a good amount. You know, my wife's an entrepreneur too, and she's kind of figured out that lifestyle balance that really helps. So she does a lot with the kids, um, a lot more than I do, that's for sure. So yeah, man, thank you. Uh, thank you for having me. I know we've been talking about this for probably a couple of years now, so I'm glad it finally worked out. It's Yeah, it's been a little a little time coming, but uh, I thought the time was right. I keep meaning, I've kept meaning to get down to Southern California so we can do this in person, and then just timing has never worked out. So like, let's, let's just do it. Um, if people want to learn more about Horace Agedales, where do they find you? Everything is pretty much Instagram, so at Horace Agedales, um, all one word. Um, my website I haven't really touched for like four years. I'm not I noticed that some hot like new it. blog posts from 2017. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know, if, if that becomes my full time thing someday, then maybe I can get that website updated finally. But uh, for sure, for sure. So catch Horace yeah. on the gram right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, thanks for joining me for the podcast. I um, I hope everybody out there gets their boosters stays safe, wears their masks, takes care of folks. Let's keep breweries open. Let's keep the economy rolling. Let's uh, keep the good times coming despite, uh, you know, this Omicron variant that seems to be getting in the way of our good times this year. Um, you know, be safe, take care of each other. Uh, you know, Kyle, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Thank you, Jamie. Have a good one, man. Yeah. Cheers. All right. Bye. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.